Suicide is a tough topic, but the Washington County Reach for Hope Suicide Prevention Coalition wants you to know that there is always hope. We are a caring community reaching out to provide compassion and hope for a community free of suicide. In the next half hour, we'll talk with community partners to identify risk factors, raise awareness, and discuss prevention strategies. Hello, and thanks for joining us on Reach for Hope, where there's always hope. I'm Melissa Anderson. Depression or even mental illness isn't something we can always see, but it should be treated as something that is real. You just don't get over it, but it is treatable. My guest today is Tina Hender, who's a longtime supporter of suicide prevention and for a good reason. Thanks for joining us today, Tina. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, you uh, would, if you would give us just a little bit of background about yourself, how and why did you become involved in suicide prevention? Uh, I became involved in suicide prevention in 2012, um, about a year after I had lost my son and uh, became involved doing the out of the darkness walks here in Washington County. Mm -hmm. I had lived down here for about six months when I found out we could do those and had the support from the AFSP board here in Utah to get that started and running. So I did that for five years. That's awesome. Now, I know you have a little bit more history uh, about uh, suicide besides your son. We'll get into that in a second. Tell us about the struggles. You lost a brother to suicide as well. Is that correct when you were younger? I did. In 1982, I was the age of 10. My brother was 15 and took his life in our family home. And that had to be tough. Was was this a mental illness? Did you see it coming? Um, I don't think any of us really saw it coming. It, there wasn't any prior history of family members having issues that I was aware of at age 10. Um, Danny, he really just wanted to live up to everyone's expectations and was always trying to do his best for everybody that kept coming to him from different angles. Um, And it was just something that, you know, he had a situation that he didn't know how to get himself out of. 10 years old is really young. That's not even into puberty yet. I mean, how old were you at that time? I was 10. Danny was 15. He was 15. Mm -hmm. So he was a sophomore in high school. So did you look up to your brother or what was your relationship with him? Um, we all did. He was the only boy in the family of five. So he had four younger sisters. So he was one that we were always watching and, and, uh, following in his footsteps, trying to see what he did and trying to do everything he was trying to do. So, you know, he was the only boy. So he was, had a lot of, um, expectations on his shoulders from both our parents and, you know, and just himself in general. So that was uh, quite a shock and a surprise, uh, when that happened. It was, he, um, he passed away December 15th in 1982. So it just threw a wrench in everything we knew existed at that point in our lives. How did you handle that at that time? Um, a lot of the things I did was just sink back into myself. I didn't know how to ask questions. I didn't know how to ask for help. Um, shortly thereafter, my parents divorced. We all went our separate ways. So it was something that none of us knew quite how to deal with, um, with each other, let alone alone. Yeah. So did you struggle with any kind of uh, thoughts of that afterwards? Um, Not in way of suicide, but just depression and wondering what we could have done to stop it. You know, we all take on responsibility after we lose a loved one. We find that um, we blame ourselves no matter what the situation How many years later then did you have your own son to take care of? My son was born... Uh, 20 years later in 1992 and 
he brought things full circle for me to, to truly understand what unconditional love was and what it meant and, and how it correlated in my life. Yeah. And so he, he kind of maybe filled that gap and that, and that void he that did. you lost from your and brother. He was, he was also the first uh, grandson born. So that kind of brought things full circle. Cause now we finally had another boy in the family, so to speak. And so he brought a lot of smiles to a lot of faces. Yeah. He's a cute little guy. You can see a picture of him up there now and your eighties hairstyle, nineties hairstyle. Hey, you know, that was fantastic. <laughs> I remember those days. When was it that you noticed that your son Austin then uh, starting to have some problems? Um, he was actually really young when he started having like anger issues. And I didn't realize it at the time um, because I wasn't as well educated as I am now. But anger in children is usually expressed when they have severe anxiety. They don't know how to deal with how they're feeling. And so anxiety and depression comes out in ways that we think is is wrong. Like they have anger, they have, uh, they push back against authority. So oppositional defiant disorder. So it comes out in those ways that we just didn't recognize back then that we do now. Yeah. And, and oftentimes they'll tell jokes or things like that to push it off. Was he doing that or was he just had the anger side? He, he was the class clown, always had to be center of attention and would push things off and show different ways to get attention so that you didn't see what was really going on. Did he struggle from ADHD or any? He did. Um, they diagnosed him with ADHD when he was 12, which is quite a ways of, you know, into life. But um, all through elementary school, he would be the one that the teachers would have a little extra special attention for because he would fidget all the time. He couldn't sit still. He would argue with the teachers. So they would allow him to stand at the back of the class at a desk versus sitting down because he would just too much going on in his mind. Did you uh, put him on any medications? Not until he was 14. Um, once he hit junior high, it really became more apparent that the ADHD was kind of an issue for him. Going from one class to another class to another class was really overwhelming. Yeah. So how old was he then when he was having severe problems and then eventually took his own life? Um, he started having a lot of more anger at home with his siblings and expressed a desire to live with his dad. And his dad's like, sure, let's have him come live here. So he moved to Colorado at um, 14 and lived there for two and a half years and then moved back home and was home for a year and a half before he took his life. Mm -hmm. So he was out of high school, just barely um, 18 and was attending Weber State University as a freshman. Wow. So he was already in college then. Yes. He'd been there for about six weeks. What, um, what was the tipping point? What do you think triggered this? Or do you think he was thinking this all along? How do you guess? Um, there are so many possibilities, you know, that we can try and wrap our heads around. He had some vehicles that uh, had died and he didn't have the money to fix them because his work wasn't giving him enough hours. He had broken up with a girlfriend that was a high maintenance emotional person. And so there was a lot of back and forth contention between them. We had a cat that had to be put down a couple of weeks before he died that he'd grown up with and known his whole life. And I think for me, the way that I look at it as the kicking point is in May of 2011, we had um, found that his jawbone had started to disintegrate 
and there we so we had it biopsied and he was a saxophone player so his ability to use his mouth and be able to uh, play his saxophone was his lifeline that was his release yeah it was his release and he had made the Weber State Marching Band at the time so he was constantly in need of playing and um, the, the biopsy had actually loosened all the teeth where um, the bone had disintegrated before we'd had the biopsy done, it was holding everything in place. But after that, it created a lot of pain and discomfort. Um, and so I think that was a, a, a large leading factor. Wow. So he was in a lot of pain. Was he on any op- opioid medications or anything? No, we had been switching his ADHD medication over to an antidepressant medication at the time. And unbeknownst to me, he had stopped taking all medications. Um, pretended to take them and pocket them and take them down to his room because, you know, he was 18. So he figured he could make his own rules and make up his own mind about how he wanted to have his future. And he didn't see it on medication. Right. Um, were there any signs or clues prior to him? Um, at the time I didn't notice them. Now looking back, there were several instances where he wouldn't join in family activities and he'd rather stay at home watching movies or anytime he could be alone was, should have been a red flag, but hadn't been. We'd always talked about suicide because having lost Danny, mm-hmm. it was a topic that was always on the forefront of my mind. And I had worked in youth corrections for 12 years prior to this. So it was, suicide prevention was something that I had always been annually trained on because I worked with at risk youth. Um, but you just don't identify it at home in the same context. Right. It's kind of absent from your mind because you're thinking it doesn't happen to me. It happens to someone else's family. It's already happened once. Why would it happen again? Right. So it was a topic that we discussed on numerous occasions um, and letting him know that he could come and talk to us about anything. And, but his, one of his biggest problems was appearing to be a disappointment to us. He didn't want anyone to think that he had done anything that would be disappointing. And so that was, that was something really big for him. There were other things that we found out after he'd passed away that, that had been a going on that we were unaware of. He'd been arrested for shoplifting and didn't tell us about it. And he'd gone to court and didn't tell us about it. And so he had a lot on his plate. He really did. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry for your losses. How are you. you doing now? Um, it's, it'll be 10 years in September. Um, to be honest, I have really, really good days and I have some really, really crappy days. Mm-hmm. Um, grief never ends because your love never ends. Right. And the law, the harder you love someone, the harder the grief is. Right. You know, many people say that suicide selfish and I don't know how, how do you respond to that? It's so hard to understand. It is hard to understand, and the older the generation, the more that is the stigma that stands around it, is it's a selfish act, and, you know, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, and both of which I thoroughly dislike those statements. Um, what people don't tend to understand is mental illness is treatable, but it's not always curable, and that's where they can't see that definition. Um the brain is an organ in the body and it can get sick and it can be a lifelong sickness. It doesn't, it's not always temporary. Right. You know, you, I like to compare 
mental illness and depression to that like of diabetes or a cancer or heart failure or it's constant. Mm-hmm. You can't get rid of diabetes. Once it's there, you know, if you're, t- if you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, it's no different than some depressions and some other mental illnesses. It, it's treatable, mm-hmm. but it's not always curable, and we forget that. Mm-hmm. And we don't know what's going on in the depths of their brain. And it's a, and it's, it's a thing you struggle with. You have, to, you have to deal with the rest of your life. Sometimes we do, yes. Yeah. What is your history then with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention? And, and you know, is this why you decided to become involved with them? Um, they really helped me to kind of define what it meant to be in prevention because I was just in survival mode at the time I found them. Um, they really kind of gave me that lifeline back into finding a coping mechanism. And when you lose someone like I have, you have to find ways to keep your mind busy and in initially keep yourself in survival mode yourself because mm-hmm. you don't know how to really deal with some of the depths of those emotions that you're going through after losing someone. Do you ever get over um, a suicide loss then? I don't think so, no. My mom, I, it's been a long time, 30, 39 years since my brother passed away, and we still delve into those emotions in many capacities. Yeah, it's kind of like a PTSD moment. Once it's triggered, it comes back, and it's like it was yesterday. Yeah, every news article, the commercials they have out on TV now, it just throws you for a loop and you're I'm grateful they're out there because there's I wouldn't want any other parent to to go through this experience you talked about stigma explain that a little bit and uh, how we've seen that change over the years I'm sure stigma to me is is basic ignorance in a way because you don't want to open your mind to understanding other people's um, life and we shouldn't be ashamed to be open with how we're feeling and what we're doing and what our real and true emotions are. We should be able to be proud and be able to say, yeah, I'm having a crap day. I feel like crap. I need to disassociate with whatever's going on so that I can refocus on what's necessary to focus on. It's okay to take a mental health day, I think. Oh, definitely. I think, I think they're even allowing that in schools now, and I think we need to understand that you know, it's okay to not be okay. It is. Yeah. And you can take that time and don't feel guilty about it because mm-hmm. we need to reset. Yeah. Everyone does. Reset before something else resets. Right. Um, we've all felt what you've been talking about in some capacity or, or other, but not everyone's willing to reach out. Uh, why would you say it's so important to rely on uh, people to let people know how they truly feel. How do we let others know it's okay to reach out? It's okay to let go and say, I need some help. I think a lot of times in life, we forget that other people understand us. We think that we're the only ones that are standing on that island of darkness, and we're not. Everybody goes through this. You're not alone. Right. We're never alone. And I think we want to just hone in and own whatever it is we're feeling because nobody's going to understand. But the reality of it is, is everybody understands. Everybody's had a moment in their life at some point where they've just been completely downtrodden and they don't have to be. Right. 
get a pick yourself up back up by the bootstraps or, or ask for someone to help you pick yeah, yourself up. I have to ask for other people to help me out because I can't do this by myself. Yeah. There's the old adage is it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a village to live a life. Mm-hmm. We need each other. We need to lean on each other. We need to respect everybody's standing in life and realize that they're just living life too. Yeah. It's interesting that when we meet people and greet, greet people on the street, we'll say, Hey, how are you? But do we really mean that? Do we really truly inside mean that we're talking about their mental health, their physical health? Why would we say that? I think it's just a, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's just a blanket everyday question. People don't really realize the depths of the truth of what they're saying or, or what they're asking. And I don't think any of us truly know how to say what's really going on because we're embarrassed or we want to keep it to ourselves. We need we to say, to how are you? How, but no, really. how, how really, how are you? And then they need to be able to reply, well, I'm okay. Well, no, how, how are you really? Well, yeah, I'm going through some things. Talk to me about it and bring up that conversation. I think that's extremely important because we need to have connection in Mm -hmm. life. And if we don't find that connection with someone initially, there's a reason. Right. And people understand us more than we think. Um, You have a suicide, um, survivors of suicide loss support group, SOS. Tell us about that. Uh, Tell us about the meetings and who can go and how do we find out more about those? Anyone who's lost a loved one can go to these meetings. It was originally started by my good friend Paula Larson in 2005 here in St. George. And she's ran it for a few years. I started helping her in 2013. She was my lifesaver when I moved down here in 2012. I would not have been able to get out of bed had she not been someone I could rely on to get me through those dark moments. Um, So we hold it every month on the third Thursday at 6 p.m. And anyone is welcome. And where is it at? And we have it at RRCI, downtown um, St. George. So 168 North, 100 East in the RRCI building. At 6 p.m. At 6 p.m. And there are several other um, support groups here in town as well. Yeah, tell me about those. Um, we do have another one that I just found out about this this last week. It's called Loss. Um, that support group is also held in the third week, but on Tuesdays. Oh. And they are held every month at 7 p.m. at the TCN building on Flood Street. And then there's also the Compassionate Friends support group, which is just a general support group. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not specifically for suicide loss, but it's held on the first Thursday at every month at 7 p.m. Yeah. So and we, you can find them all on Facebook. That's a great thing. So um, there's an interesting saying that every 40 seconds, someone in the world dies by su- suicide and every 41 seconds, someone is let to make sense of it. Um, how does that impact us? Is, um, this, is this how you felt and still feel? Oh, I still feel that way. Yeah. I, it's very disheartening. Um, the number of suicides that we continue to have in our country as well as in our state, it's, it's devastating. People are so afraid to let people in and we need to stop being afraid and stop using our pride and talk to each other. And we need to not blame ourselves Oh, that's as a survivor, yeah. right? Tell us Most about definitely. that. It's not, it's not a crime. It's not um, a crime and no one is, 
suicide is a blameless act. It, there's no one to blame. We go through or we blame ourselves, we blame them, we blame an inanimate object, anything we can just to try and get us through that moment of grief. But there is no one to blame. The brain gets sick. Yeah. And we just need to respect that. So as grandparents, parents, sisters, brothers, uh, we need to support each other on that. Um, if they say they're fine, they might not be. They might need some coping skills. They might need some coping skills. They might need just a hug. Yeah, that's it's good. It's amazing how far first physical touch can go to helping someone in in a really hard moment. Because they know someone cares. Exactly. Really cares. Truly and heartfeltly. Yeah. We also that's need to way. ask that tough question. And I don't know if you've asked it before, but are you contemplating suicide right now? I have asked that. Um, I have three young children. Young, Well, at the time that Austin died, my children were 10, 11, and 13 that lived at home. And I have had to ask that question. We have had instances of self-harm with my remaining children and times that we've had to ask that question. And I never thought it would be one I'd have to ask so blatantly because it seems so harsh. But the reality is if you don't put it on the table, they're not going to let you know. Putting it out there doesn't put the mind, put that uh, possibility into their mind. They're already thinking it. The more you hide it, and not say it out loud, the more they keep it as their personal secret. And it can't be a personal secret. It has to be on the table. It's just a, it's just such a tough question to ask, but we need to make sure that it's not taboo. And yeah, we do. You know, so many times we just want to put on our blinders. And the reality is, is our kids are hurting. Mm -hmm. They had a lot to deal with right now in the world, probably a lot more than we did when we were kids. Well, and this last year proves that even more. Mm -hmm. You know, our, we've lost so many kids and so many adults to suicide that I've heard of just in the last year that it's heartbreaking. I think it's the isolation um, it is. with the COVID and everything just kind of isolates you and makes you feel like, well, nobody cares and no one would miss me. But that's not true. No, it's not. It's the farthest thing from the truth. Right. Um, what would you like to leave our audiences with regarding lessons learned, um, struggles, um, and something that might make a difference in their lives? Love unconditionally. Take the time to really look at the person sitting in front of you. Not just at their current demeanor, but everything about them. And ask the hard questions. Just always ask. And be there to support them and listen. I think listening is really key to that. I mean, and oh, knowing the clues and, and trying to figure out. I mean, it, it's just something. It's, it's baffling. It is. It's, it's the hardest thing we ever have to do. You know, you spend a lifetime raising your children but when you lose one, you spend a lifetime going, what did I do wrong? And I didn't. You didn't. Don't blame yourself. Exactly. But it's taken a long time to figure that out. And we just have to love our kids unconditionally. We have to love our parents unconditionally. And mental illness is hard to love through, but it's possible. Yeah. So we just need to love each other unconditionally yep. and ask that difficult question and be there to support our loved ones. And to support ourselves. Yes, most and definitely. And love yourself, right? Reach out and do. give yourself a give big hug. Give yourself a big hug all the time because the day-to-day -day crap that we deal with is hard. Where's, but it doesn't have to be 
by ourselves. Right. And we're survivors. You're a survivor. I am. You're, you're a su- success story among the survivors. I would like to think so. Um, it's, it's not been an easy road, but it's been worth it. All right. Well, I'd just like to say thank you for, for sharing your support group, your, your, your loss support group, your, yourself, your story. It's, it's got to be hard to dig this up and talk about it, but hopefully it'll help some people. That's my hope because I would hate to have someone in my shoes 40 seconds from now. Right. Thank you so much, Tina, for all you do and all you've done. I just really would appreciate you. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Appreciate that. And uh, we just like to thank all of you out there. And thanks for joining us. And remember that our goal is to reach for hope. It's to provide suicide prevention information so others can share. And we can all have knowledge of what to do and what to say and uh, how to deal with these problems. And suicide is treatable or suicide prevention is treatable. Mental health is treatable. And we need to learn from each other's experiences and and continue to talk about it. So uh, thank you, Tina. And and any last words? Oh, no. Thank you for letting me be here today. I appreciate it. Yeah. We just appreciate you and and wish you the best. And and your children are doing okay. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for watching. And remember, there's always hope. The Reach for Hope Coalition wants you to know that we care about you and we are here to help. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, reach out. You're not alone. To access resources for yourself or others, visit our webpage at reachforhopeutah.org. That's reach, the number four, hopeutah.org. If you are experiencing a crisis, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK because you matter and there is always hope. This has been a production from a podcast studio.